Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from the book of Isaiah, starting at chapter 52, verse 13, and going through to chapter 53, verse 12. Isaiah 52, 13. The suffering and glory of the servant. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, 
and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you here this morning and to, even though it's a, uh, a live service and you're sitting in your lounge rooms, children are making sheep, perhaps they might get some help from the parents as long as you're not distracted. Uh, we've got this wonderful passage from Isaiah 53 to look at together, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Isaiah the prophet who so long ago foretold the wonder of Jesus' substitution for our sins, his death on the cross and his resurrection. Father, we pray that your same spirit who inspired the, uh, the prophet Isaiah might work in us, that we might grow in our knowledge of Jesus and live our lives to his glory, for we ask it in his name. Amen. We're in a seven-week series on Isaiah, and we're coming to the second last of these series. Uh, last week, uh, Prash spoke on Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 sort of begins a new section in the whole of the book. In fact, the book has got 66 chapters, which parallels, of course, 66 books in the Bible. Uh, one of the, your know, children know all the books of the Bible in order, or know the numbers, there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And so up to chapter 39 is the beginning of Isaiah, and he's writing particularly to his contemporaries and of the failure of Israel. Then from chapter 40 on, he speaks of the way in which God's going to resolve uh, the problems of Israel. Uh, firstly, they're going to go into captivity, and then, of course, after 70 years, they're going to be released from captivity and come in back into the land of Israel. Of course, Isaiah is writing the 8th century BC, and he's speaking of things which would happen 100 years later with the deportation to Babylon, but actually 100 years beyond that, or 70 years beyond that, to the celebration of the return of Israel from Babylon into the land of Canaan. But of course, Isaiah is writing not just for his contemporaries, he's writing for all God's people and particularly us in this generation because he speaks so eloquently and so powerfully about Jesus and Jesus' death on a cross. So let's uh, have, a, have a look at uh, this uh, chapter together. If you look at the, uh, the opening section, or the end of chapter uh, 52, chapter 52 begins with trying to encourage Jerusalem to put on beautiful garments. Uh, he speaks of how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, in our vision statement, we're talking about a beautiful church, a church which was, has the garments of Jesus upon us, beautiful, uh, diverse, and large. That's what we want to see here at St. Stephen's and all by the grace of God through Christ. You'll notice there at the, at the, uh, towards the end, depart, leave, go hence uh, from and without and don't touch any unclean thing. 
In other words, leave Babylon, get ready to go. Uh, the priests are to take the chosen holy vessels from out of uh, Babylon back in Jerusalem where they belong. Nebuchadnezzar, 70 years previously, had st stolen those vessels and put them in the temple of his own God. What a blasphemy. But now Israel is to come out of Babylon and back into the land where God wants them. And then you get down to verse 13. See my servant. My servant. Uh, God is the one who owns the servant. It's a servant who comes from God. From Isaiah 42 to 55 and a bit beyond, uh, there are four servant songs. And what might be helpful for you this week, we haven't got time to look at them all, is for you to reflect through the way each of these songs builds momentum for the climax we're going to see in chapter 53 and then ultimately onto the final end of the book in chapter 66 that Matt will look at next week. The servant, of course, is a description of Israel in the first instance. Uh, in chapter 42, you see that uh, Israel is referred to as my servant, but he is blind and deaf. In other words, the servant who was meant to sing God's praise, and we see that in chapter 43, is the one who is incapable of doing so because Israel is blind and deaf, deaf to the prophets, blind to God's glory, and they are, they are failing to walk in the way in which God has asked them to walk. The promises of God in the Old Testament feature upon Abraham in particular, beginning with Adam, of course, but coming through to Abraham and a people who would be a blessing to all nations. Israel was to be the means of that blessing. But if we look at the Old Testament, we see that Israel failed to do that. So God in his purposes provides, if you like, a new Israel, a new servant. A servant is actually going to fulfill all that Israel was meant to be and more. And this servant is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Isaiah is speaking here of a particular one. And as we go through this passage, you'll see he's not just merely human, he's also divine. In other words, for God to actually bring about the salvation that he promised to his people, a salvation which would extend to all nations, it is only through God's Son that that can be achieved. The problem is so great that it's only the divine Son of God in human form, in human flesh, who can fulfill this, fulfill this. So notice, behold my servant. And you'll see there how my servant will act wisely or he will prosper, another uh, translation of that word. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Here, it's, it's interesting how you, that sense in which looking, you can't help but read these, this text with Jesus in mind. Of course, the first readers didn't quite understand that. They knew of this servant, but the wondrous things this servant was going to do, we see in almost minute detail, applies to Jesus. But we'll come to that in due course. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. This Jesus, this servant of, of whom Isaiah speaks, has, lowly, has a lowly beginning. He uh, is one who... Isn't, uh, is not recognised for his uh, 
for the uh, for who he is. He's not recognised. He is uh, despised. He those who look at him are appalled. His figure is disfigured uh, more than any human being, and yet he's the one who's going to sprinkle the nations. And sprinkling the nations is a way in which he's going to cleanse the nations. This servant's ministry and task is greater than Israel. It's actually for all peoples. That's the diverse characteristic of our church. The diverse characteristic of the, of the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. Sprinkling the nations, bringing people from every tribe and nation, language and uh, group into God's wonderful family. So here we see uh, this, the, the way in which uh, the servant is to uh, bring this about. He, he, has a, he grows up before like a tender shoot, and that's a reference back to Isaiah 11, uh, the shoot of Jesse, the Davidic kingship. This servant has overlays of a Davidic kingship which speaks of the Messiah. And here we find this, uh, the, the servant here is the one who uh, does that. He has no beauty or majesty, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Notice that phrase, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Jesus in his life uh, suffered uh, we talk about the passion of Jesus. Passion is a word which comes from a Latin word meaning suffering. So here the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, is to do with his not only being in this world but also dying on the cross. Like one whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But then you'll notice the very next verse, in verse 4, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. In other words, here the suffering and pain of Jesus, actually he takes our pain and our suffering. Notice he puts them in reverse order here, suffering and pain, pain and suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him. In the first century, of course, to die on a cross was a, a, a terrible thing. It was a great shame. It was an ignominy. It was a, a, a way in which people jeered at those who were on cross because they were guilty of, of high treason or great crimes. But of course, the irony of this verse here in verse, uh, uh, verse 4 is that, yes, he was stricken by God. God was laying upon him the punishment which was due to us all. So there we find that uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds are we, are he, we are healed. Here Isaiah speaks of the peace that is to be ours. Uh, the peace, of course, the servant would bring would be a peace of not just redemption out of Babylon and into the land of Canaan, but peace forever, everlasting peace. That peace of God that passes understanding. That peace would come because of what Jesus would do. And so we come on to verse 6, and uh, that uh, in the spotlight, that's verse that uh, Pippi highlighted for us. Uh, All we like sheep have gone astray. 
If you're of an older generation, you will probably think of Handel's Messiah, uh, where this is a wonderful verse picked up uh, by Handel uh, from Isaiah. Or if you're in the younger generation, you might know the Colin Buchanan song uh, with regard to all we like sheep have gone astray, do bar, do bar, bar. I won't try to sing that, obviously. So, but here is this great, if you like, a capstone in the midst of chapter 53 that we are like sheep. We're distracted. Hope you're not being distracted by your children. Children, I hope those sheep are going well too as we, as we go through this talk. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is just such an extraordinary thought, such an extraordinary action which explains the death of Jesus. It's not just the death of any person. There were two other people who were crucified on the same day with Jesus on his left and on his right, two criminals. But Jesus was an innocent man. But God was playing, uh, placing upon him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity, that's the big word for sin uh, that the Bible uses. Uh, older members of the congregation, sorry to keep referring to you because I'm in your class, uh, well, remember EE, Evangelism Explosion, that we used to do here at St. Stephen's. And there was an illustration in EE which I've always found very helpful. It talks about the way in which, imagine you had a book of your life. Not just a book of your life with, with pretty pictures, but full of indictments, full of descriptions of all the wrong things that you've done. I've actually got a very edited version of my life here because all my sins would be a much greater book. It would be as big as a phone book if we had phone books anymore. Anyhow, imagine this is all my sins. Everything I've done wrong, every unkind word, every unkind action, every evil thought, every uh, opportunity I might have taken to, to take someone else's property, uh, the way in which I've had hatred in my heart towards other people or just simply the way in which I'd gone my own way and not followed God. Imagine it was all written down here, and here am I, and here is this great testimony of judgment against me. That's my sins. It's so big that I can't even see my hand. And here is Jesus. Jesus has no sin. Jesus is perfect. No deceit was found in his mouth. He acted wisely. He's the righteous servant. And what God does is this. He lays my sin upon Jesus like that. So I say, where, is, where am I? And where is my sin? It's no longer on me. It's actually on Jesus. And because Jesus is not only human but divine... He can extinguish that sin. He can completely remove it. As the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Of course, the way in which God removes our sins is to deal with them. God doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. He actually deals with sin. And of course, the punishment for sin is death. And that's why Jesus had to die. We were all like sheep that had gone astray. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That is just an extraordinary, 
teaching, an extraordinary act of God's goodness and graciousness towards us, that he should take our sins from us. There's nothing that we've done to bring that about, but to trust in Jesus and to receive that salvation that God has given for his people. The languages that follow, too, in the, in the following verses, he talks about that Jesus was like a lamb. Interestingly, he uses the same parallel language of sheep and lamb because Jesus has become like us. In the Old Testament, the way sins were atoned for or taken away was through the imagery of a sacrifice of a lamb. And that lamb was, was killed uh, in, as a way of showing the punishment for sin is death. But of course, the death of lambs can't take away sins. Or the book of Hebrews writes about the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. That's why in the Old Testament, the sacrifices are repeated day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. The Day of the Atonement, a national day in Israel's calendar, was a day of atonement, taking away sins. But it was repetitive because it was just a symbol, a picture, an audio-visual, if you like, of what God would do in Jesus. And Isaiah is bringing this picture before his audience and before us, that this is what was happening to Jesus. He was fulfilling the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Noticed he was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Uh, this is so characteristic of the description of Jesus we find in the Gospels. That was exactly that, wasn't it? He did not protest. He did not try to get away. He voluntarily went to the cross for us, for you and for me. And so we find that the details of this, he was cut off from the land of the living. In verse 9, it's very interesting, you'll see there, uh, I'll go into the next, in verse 9, he was assigned uh, a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now you don't pick it up in English translations, but the Hebrew word for wicked is in the plural. But the Hebrew word for rich is in the singular. In other words, he's talking about the wicked people, like the two thieves on either side, but the rich man, the rich person, Joseph of Arimathea, who provided the grave for Jesus' death. That particularity of Isaiah's fulfilment shows that God is a God who knows the end from the beginning. He can predict these things way back in the 8th century with regard to wicked men and a, and a rich man. The, the passage then goes on to talk about the Lord's will was to crush him and uh, to suffer. And there we, we find that in verse 10. It was God who makes his life an offering for sin. You recall at the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the glory of God, but Isaiah, Isaiah says he's, he's a man of unclean lips and impurity. And what God does is he sends a, a seraph or seraphim coming to bring a coal from the altar. That's part of the sacrificial system, to cleanse and forgive Isaiah's sins. Isaiah lives in a, among a people of unclean lips and impurity. And Isaiah is forgiven in order he might have a ministry to his people. But of course, Isaiah can't forgive the people. Only God can do that. 
And even though that coal has come from the, the altar, in actual fact, Isaiah, though like a substitute, speaks here of the true substitute, the servant of the Lord, the one who substitutes his life for our life. He's an offering for sin. And he will see his offspring, and that's us, his seed, his followers, to prolong their days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And then the very next verse, in, in verse 11, has this interesting phrase, By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Uh, the word knowledge here is not just is, is a deep word in terms of not only knowledge of God, but acting on that knowledge. And the reference to the righteous servant is telling us that this servant, despised by humans, is actually sinless. No deceit was found in his mouth. No guile on his lips. Jesus was the sinless sacrifice, the righteous sacrifice. And that's ever so important. Because it is not just his death, but his life and death that save us. Later on this morning, we're going to be looking, participating, not just looking, watching Prash, but taking bread and taking juice or wine ourselves to remember Jesus' life and death. The Holy Communion is a way in which we participate in Christ. And I hope your children will join with you if they're baptised and members of Christ's family, what a wonderful way for them to take and eat. And when you take the bread and drink the cup, I want you to think of the bread as Jesus' righteousness in place of your lack of righteousness. Remember that book of all my sins? Well, you've probably got a book too. And yet God has provided Jesus with the perfect life, to live the life that neither you nor I could live. And when you take the wine or the juice, think of Jesus' death, his sacrifice, his blood poured out for what you deserved under God's judgment, under God's righteous law. Jesus has taken up that as well. It's the life and death of Jesus that saves us. By his knowledge, notice in verse 11, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And he goes on to speak then in the, in the final section uh, in verse 12, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. For he justified us. The justifying the many, notice the word many there in verse 11. Many means not just Israel but all nations all those who bow the knee to Jesus, all who become members of his people. This is the wonder of Jesus' death. This is the wonder of God's grace towards us. This is the wonder found here in Isaiah, eight centuries before Jesus was born. And here we now are 20 centuries on from that time, into the 21st century. And we recognise that God's promises are still secure. There's a very interesting story in the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, you can look at Acts chapter 8. Philip, one of the seven who's been designated by the apostles to have a particular ministry, 
he, he meets an Ethiopian uh, traveler, a eunuch actually, but we needn't worry about that. Uh, he's an Ethiopian who's come to Jerusalem. He's a God-fearer. He's not a Jew. He's one of the nations. And he's reading his Bible. He's got a text of Isaiah there. And the passage he's reading, if you look at Acts chapter 8, verses 32, he reads the section, As a sheep is led to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is dumb, he opened not his mouth. And in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? And Philip comes up and hears uh, the Ethiopian reading this, and the Ethiopian says, who's he speaking about? Who is this person? Is it a, a, a particular individual? Is it a, 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 does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And then Philip beautifully opens the text of Scripture to explain all this is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And he has a wonderful gospel explanation to, to Philip, which concludes in Philip's baptism when he sees some water nearby. And he goes home rejoicing as a Christian, as one who's been saved by Jesus. What an extraordinary thing for him. What an extraordinary thing for us. If you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, if you and your children trust in him, and know that only he can save you from your sins. If we were to stand before God's judgment and we hadn't had our sins transferred, we would only suffer condemnation. But if we stand before the, on the day of judgment, before the, God great, the great God and King of the universe, and we find that our sins are no longer on us, but on Jesus, that Jesus has taken those sins and consumed them, taken God's wrath in his very person on that cross so that you and I might live forever, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, not only in this life, but in the life to come. What a glorious saviour. Lift up your eyes to him and trust him for your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise and the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would so lead us, correct us, reprove us, that we might walk in the ways of Christ, knowing that our sins are forgiven and indeed the judgment has been taken from us so that we might have life. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.